This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, corruption and espionage on a special edition of our program. We're expanding Latin Pulse to an hour this week for a freewheeling discussion of corruption and its impact on the hemisphere. Plus, we'll have an in-depth report on the controversial espionage case of the Cuban Five. But first, our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Megan Eckhamel is away for the next few weeks. Instead, Zach Cohen is here with the latest from Venezuela and beyond. Opposition political leader Leopoldo Lopez surrendered to authorities in Venezuela this week. Judicial authorities charged Lopez with inciting violence and arson. President Nicolas Maduro accused Lopez of being one of the ringleaders of what he called a slow-motion coup attempt. At least five people have died in the violent protests that have rocked Venezuela during the past two weeks, and scores more have been injured. Lopez, a former mayor and leader of the Voluntad Popular Party, released a statement to followers on YouTube before his arrest. We should not allow ourselves to be filled with the lies the government transmits via the media it controls and manipulates and through its mandatory broadcasts. Critics of Maduro and his government have also chastised the Venezuelan broadcast media for their lack of coverage of the opposition viewpoints of Lopez and the protesters. Those critics say much of the Venezuelan media have bowed to the government pressure to paint the protesters as anti-democratic. The protest started with student demonstrations against high crime, inflation, and product shortages. President Maduro also ordered the expulsion of three U.S. diplomats, saying they were plotting with his political opposition. U.S. President Barack Obama traveled to Toluca, Mexico this week to meet with the leaders of Mexico and Canada. This summit of North American leaders was held partially to mark the 20th anniversary of the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA. Obama noted trade was the top priority during the meetings. However, the drug war also made Obama's list of major discussion topics. Here in Mexico, the security forces and the Mexican people continue to make enormous sacrifices in that fight, and our three nations are united against this threat. In the United States, uh, we continue to be committed to reduce the demand for illegal drugs, and we'll continue our unprecedented efforts to combat the southbound flow of illegal guns and cash. President Enrique Peña Nieto of Mexico and Prime Minister Stephen Harper of Canada discussed a wide variety of issues with Obama. The conversations included a plan to deepen NAFTA through the proposed Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Pact, immigration and visa reforms, educational exchanges, and environmental concerns. As part of that area, the leaders even agreed to a joint task force aimed at halting the decline of the monarch butterfly. Colombia's President Juan Manuel Santos fired the country's army chief this week. Santos dismissed General Leonardo Barrero after recordings of his phone calls surfaced in the media. During the phone call, the general insulted Colombian prosecutors investigating extrajudicial killings and corruption. Although Barrero has not been charged with any crime, his dismissal came days after the Colombian newsweekly Semana revealed in an investigative report that an intricate network of corruption has attached itself to the Colombian military. The investigative report revealed that as much as half the money spent on some military units never went to those units, but instead ended up in the pockets of corrupt officers or other powerful individuals. 
the amount lost to corruption could total more than $4 billion annually. This program will feature an in-depth discussion of corruption after this newscast. Uruguay's Foreign Minister Luis Almagro addressed an audience at American University in Washington, D.C. this week about the importance of human rights and social reforms in his country. Almagro spoke about how the traditional international war on drugs had failed, so Uruguay took a different path. We take decisions related to marijuana is because the previous formulas didn't work and it doesn't have any sense to keep on exposing our, our uh, youth, our young generations to the criminals, to drug trafficking, to all this. That this uh, kills more people than any drug can kill, especially marijuana. And so it's, uh, but of course this has to be regulated and has to be according parameters of health and, and these rights. Uruguay is the first country in the world to completely legalize the use of marijuana and put distribution of the drug under state control. The Economist magazine named Uruguay the top country in the world in 2013, citing its marijuana reforms and its legalization of same-sex marriage as the major reason for the honor. For Latin Pulse, I'm Zach Cohen. Thanks, Zach. We have a number of firsts this week on Latin Pulse. We have our largest panel of experts on hand to discuss the important subject of corruption and its effects on politics, policy, and society throughout Latin America. We're also using Google Hangout for the first time to link up our panel. And an additional note, this discussion was recorded before all of the revelations this week of the extent of the corruption scandal that has beset the Colombian military. Here are excerpts from our wide-ranging discussion of corruption. Uh, We have uh, three guests to talk to us about that particular topic. Adam Isaacson of the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA, Luis Boteo of the International Center for Journalists, and Fulton Armstrong of American University Center for Latin American and Latino Studies, who's joining us from Costa Rica. Our other guests are in the Washington, D.C. area. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks very much. Thank you. We want to start, I think, uh, with Fulton Armstrong in Costa Rica. Um, We don't often talk about Costa Rica and corruption in the same sentence, and compared to its neighbors, Costa Rica is often ranked much higher when we deal with the issue of corruption. But corruption in the past 10, 15 years has really had a major impact on Costa Rica. Uh, Some people argue that it has almost completely destroyed the credibility of the conservative party in Costa Rica, the PUSC. So from Costa Rica, Fulton, I I wonder what your impression is of the impact of corruption on Costa Rica and Latin America at large. As you you said, Costa Rica is not the worst of all of the countries in the region, or certainly not in the world. It's sort of in the top quarter of of the 170-something countries ranked by Transparency International. And and it's not just the conservative party that's suffering from this image. We just had elections down here, and it it uh, it was really an omnipresent issue throughout the campaign. On election day, the voters blinked a little bit and still went with some of the older voices and didn't go very progressive, and anti-corruption was not a major theme. But it was omnipresent in a cultural and social way, and I'm sure even in an economic way, although the the statistics really are so soft that one can't make uh, big judgments about it. The, the, The corruption isn't as bad as elsewhere, as I said, but it is blamed for the crumbling roads, uh, there, the um, some bridges on the on the 
little beltway in downtown San Jose crashed in a couple of months ago and they put Bailey's bridges uh, in their place and immediately people uh, point to corruption as being a factor or all the highway costs are absolutely outrageous in the views of most Costa Ricans and they blame blame that. The and high prices for medications, there's you know corruption decline in the education system, it, corruption is blamed. Uh, and all of that. It's become sort of a ready-made excuse rather than uh, a, a strong political issue that's going to drive change. And that ready-made excuse leads to sort of this culture of self-absolution. Because everybody else is corrupt, I'm going to cut corners. Uh, I'm going to park illegally. I'm going to evade my taxes. I'm not going to vote. The absentee rate in the, in the election was along historic grounds, but going into the election, there was a great deal of fear that this skepticism or cynicism that's bred by the sensation and perception of corruption was really contaminating the whole democratic process. So it's, a, it's an issue, it's not a tangible issue, but it's an intangible issue that casts a shadow over much of Costa Rican society as it does, in, I would posit, throughout Latin America. Let me follow up um, on the issue of corruption and anti-corruption. Wasn't the big surprise in these recent elections that the anti-corruption party, which has been a, a third party, smaller party in Costa Rica, actually won in the first round of the elections? Uh, hard to say if they'll actually um, bring their candidate to the presidency, but was, wasn't that part of this discussion? It's It was, but actually the, the louder voices on the anti-corruption issue were cast as being Chavista and communists and all of that. And so the debate and the element of the political debate that was corruption got short-circuited by this neo-McCarthyism that had crept into the campaign at the end. Solis is not uh, exactly your old-school politician, but he's not exactly new-school either. The issue is going to be there. And also, we're looking at a Congress here that's going to be very badly divided, very ineffectual. Um, and... Uh, it's, it's going to be a very difficult row for him to hoe, even if he does try some anti-corruption. Let me bring Luis Boteo of the International Center for Journalists into the discussion. Luis, you are a native of Central America, a native of Panama, um, here in D.C. these days. But I, I wonder if uh, Fulton's observations about how corruption works its way into society because of these examples, if, if that particular explanation um, works for you, or if you agree with that? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, I mean, in the case of Costa Rica, I mean, despite the fact that we, you know, we, we don't, we can say that Costa Rica certainly has been known for uh, high corruption, but I, I will say that uh, in, in recent years, uh, there has been uh, several uh, huge scandals, actually, there, there, there in, in Costa Rica involving uh, government officials and uh, I think what, what I would say is that Costa Rica probably benefit the most in, in the case that it has a very vibrant press. I mean you got La Nación in Costa Rica that has a very very uh, strong investigative reporting team which in fact have won several awards and I must say sadly that uh, just last week the uh, editor of, uh, of this uh, prestige uh, news organizations resign actually Yanina Siagnini who uh, is a well-known journalist that has actually broke most of the uh, biggest scandals in Costa Rica that actually led to uh, to the conviction of former presidents actually in Costa Rica uh, basically um, left the paper 
claiming that she um, doesn't have now the ability to do the investigations she used to do. So that, that kind of tells you uh, that something's going on uh, in, in Costa Rica, and, and, and you know, I'm, I'm sure Fulton knows that this, uh, uh, this race, the uh, political race in, in Costa Rica uh, now is really, uh, really tainted by, by several scandals there. So I, I would say that even, even Costa Rica that is probably best in terms of the perception in, in corruption in terms that people doesn't really link Costa Rica with this situation, there, there is something certainly changing uh, there when you have the uh, top journalists <laughs> of the best paper basically publicly saying she's leaving because she doesn't have these, the same freedoms anymore. Uh, moving into uh, Panama uh, and other Central American countries where we do have uh, a couple of programs that uh, actually promotes cross-border reporting, uh, promotes uh, high standards and in-depth in reporting for, for journalists, there are, there are certainly uh, huge problems with corruption and they are all linked to public service issues for transportation and you know I don't want to say this is a, a corruption problem but you just have to see what's happening uh, in the last few weeks in Panama with the Panama Canal expansion which um, you know is probably the most important uh, huge mega project I mean uh, the most important mega project in recent uh, certainly in the last century that, that involve world trade, you know, this is going to impact uh, everybody. And, and now you got the, the canal, the, the expansion that was going fairly well, uh, basically on hold. Uh, work has stopped and everything has been around money, uh, everything has been around the way the process has been conducted, uh, uh, which I have no doubt the Panama Canal administration has done a, a very good job and, and has really uh, uh, highlighted the, uh, how, how far Panama has gone in terms of development and, and how to handle uh, big industries like the Panama Canal and have done it in a very remarkable way. However, there, there has been signs uh, and, and people have been concerned in terms of how uh, this big mega project went and now we have this huge battle between the uh, the Sarsi the Sarsi company, the Spanish company that is responsible for the canal, along with some of the one of the, one Italian company and the Belgian com Belgian company, um, and how they have been handling the, the the canal. And now they are asking for you know uh, 1.6 billion dollars, uh, uh, you know, which is a lot, you know. Uh, a lot of money for, for Panama and the war. So I, I think uh, that in Panama, certainly public service, you have the government building uh, huge amounts of hospitals. We know resources to equip these, these hospitals. Uh, you have uh, uh, a lot of development. Actually, there is a boom, a booming uh, real estate boom there right now because highways are going everywhere and, and you know there is uh, the perception that overpriced is certainly something that is happening in all those projects. So I, I do think there is a, a long way to go and there are many similarities, the same thing happening in other countries in Central America. 
so Luis, we're to assume that the $1.6 billion cost overruns in construction for this Panama Canal expansion, that we're, we're to assume that the percentage of that is because of corruption, because people need to, to get something under the table. Well, you know, I think it's, it's too early to, to tell. Um, I think all that is still uh, being, uh, actually, the parts are still negotiating. The problem is that who is to blame for that overcost and whether or not people knew before uh, that this uh, overcall was actually going to happen anyway, uh, but that the, the, that the canal gave the contract anyway. Um, despite the fact that uh, the other company, which was the uh, Bechtel company, you know, the American company was uh, the, uh, one of the bidders as well, uh, have basically um, provided a, a, an estimate cost that was exactly almost the $1.6 billion that now the Spanish company is asking in terms of over, over costs that they didn't anticipate it. So there is a blame game right now whether or not the administration uh, basically didn't, didn't um, uh, know that that could happen and didn't uh, raise the flag, the fact that, that why is that price so low. And apparently uh, the, it was even lower than what the, the administration, the Panama Canal administration even expected uh, that they could actually do this project with. So, um, we don't know usually the way, uh, and the problem is that in, in other cases, the governments have provided this, uh, have actually approved these, these uh, bids and, and have given concessions to big international corporations. And they, you know, suddenly change the terms. And in some cases, uh, it looks like the country is not complying with the contra contract, and suddenly you see the the uh, government saying, "I'm sorry, we, we 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 did this wrong. So now we need to reimburse you for everything you have done, and even pay a fine." And and we have seen cases where you know companies company have not even finished projects, and they go away with millions of dollars in compensation because the country didn't comply with the contract. We don't know if this is the case, you know. Uh, the canal has been run very well. It's, it's one of the most prestigious institutions in the countries. Have managed to keep uh, politics out of the administration of the day-to-day -day work, but because everything has been done in that way, you you still have voices saying maybe they knew, maybe someone knew this was going to happen, and now you know we were just going to write a blind check. And unfortunately, I mean, uh, you know, for the company. Uh, but fortunately for Panamanians, the administration has said that they won't accept that anymore, and that they will stick with, uh, you know, we stick with what the contract says. So th there, there is still uh, some negotiations going on. You have also an Italian company involved. There has been uh, stories that have linked uh, President Martinelli with, uh, with uh, uh, pres uh, former President Berlusconi, which, as you know, uh, is being uh, trial uh, in, in Italy, and 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 in fact there have been negotiations in, uh, of potentially some big projects that the Italians were going to do in exchange for donations, and that uh, the president was going to get supposedly uh, a helicopter. 
So there have been press stories in Italy and in Panama about all this that is going on, and now people might even think that uh, that that relationship that uh, President Martinelli had with Berlusconi may be related to what's going on with the with the canal. So uh, this is all related with these public projects that are happening. Because we have uh, discussed the transparency. International uh, Perceptions Index regarding corruption. Just as a comparison, Costa Rica is ranked 49th on that index, uh, while Panama is ranked at 102, wow. tied with Ecuador. Uh, let me attempt to bring Adam Isaacson of the Washington Office on Latin America into the conversation. Uh, Adam, you've been listening to this discussion of Costa Rica and of Panama. You have experience in Central America regarding the drug war. I'm wondering if you've seen this, these, these problems um, inherent in that particular avenue, or if there are other areas of, of Central America that you would like to comment on. Well, yeah, I mean, the, I think corruption has probably flourished um, in uh, many countries in Central America and, and elsewhere in Latin America uh, for the very same reason that the drug trade has done well, because um, justice systems are quite weak. Um, there is, has not in many countries been an expectation that corruption will be fully investigated and punished uh, just because the justice system is going to do its job on its own. Um, when there is not faith in the courts, in prosecutors and judges and witnesses to do this, people don't come forward. Uh, you have, uh, uh, it, there's a lot less incentive to be a whistleblower. Um, you may have uh, some good investigative journalists, uh, as Luis mentioned, who are doing their job quite well, but they're not going to have as many sources. Um, so that, that's, that's where a lot of this happens. And, and, and so as a result, you have this, this vacuum um, of, uh, of rule of law, let's call it that, that narco-traffickers can also take advantage of quite well, um, quite often not even having to threaten uh, um, officials to get their way, to have their routes, to have their product move through. Uh, without any problem, it's quite easier just to cut everybody in on it the same way you would with a construction contract, um, with little expectation of, of being discovered or, or found. And, you know, that goes all the way down to what Fulton was talking about, how um, the frustration or the, the acceptance even of some degree of corruption goes all the way down to where you would park your car. Um, and there's words for it everywhere about how people make, you know, the, the, the state makes rules and then people make arrangements to get around the rules. And in Brazil, they call that, a, I'm going to pronounce it badly, a jetinho, a, a little deal that you make with uh, a, a petty official to, to get around some rule that exists. Uh, in, in Mexico, when you're pulled over, the, the police expect a mordida, a little bite, a little bribe. Um, a lot of mayors or, or, or governors all around the region often have the, the, the word quince attached to their name. I'm Jorge Quince, they'll call them, because uh, they expect 15% out of every contract that gets made. Um, you know, and it, it doesn't really get down to, uh, uh, it doesn't get reported and, and, and it doesn't get punished with, with a lot of regularity. Um, and of course, narco-trafficking in Central America will, will or, or, in, or in the Andes or in Mexico, especially at the local level, will flourish in an environment like that. The, uh, oh. I think that you've made another point there, Adam, that, that, that shows that Costa Rica is not as bad as others because here it's the word diez that's put after the name. <laughs> so it's Johnny, Johnny, the current mayor, or the, not the current mayor, he was Johnny Araya, the presidential yeah. Johnny Araya, they call him Johnny Diez. Uh, and stuff. So <laughs> you see, Costa Rica is not that bad. That's I why think, they're lower, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think one thing going back just for Costa Rica and then we can shift to other stuff is uh, Luis is exactly right about the implications of the retirement or the very unhappy departure of the chief of investigative reporting for La Nación. Even though she was there and there were investigations, there were huge gaps in those investigations. The president had a scandal on her hands um, about six or eight months ago where she inadvertently or unwittingly or without her staff telling her or without her staff knowing one way or the other rode a narco uh, a narcos airplane down to to a presidential event in Peru uh, and all of that and so but also I mean even Laura Chinchilla yes 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 the um, yeah, not President Obama, if that's what you're. The um, the 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 perception of even La Nación, which did have this pretty decent uh, investigative staff, was that they're really working for some some political or economic elite. That there's almost always an agenda behind the stories. Uh, the way that they don't go and challenge certain things that one set of politicians would say. Uh, and sort of publish them as stated, even though everybody knew that they were riddled with exaggerations and inaccuracies. So it's a, it, it, even though it's the best, there's still a lot to be done here. Gentlemen, we have just started our conversation, but it's time for us to take a break. We'll be back with more on our special on corruption on Latin Pulse in a moment. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, Life, an amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse and our special on corruption. Our guest today, Adam Isaacson of the Washington Office on Latin America, Fulton Armstrong of American University Center for Latin American and Latino Studies, who joins us from Costa Rica, and Luis Boteo of the International Center for Journalists. When we finished our last uh, segment, we were talking a lot about justice systems and the weakness of justice systems in Latin America and why that seems to fuel corruption. Luis, you had some points you wanted to make about that. We are talking about systems uh, by which the presidents kind of made most of the charts. You know, it's not a system, it's what we call presidencialista, you know. Uh, the president has to uh, basically answer all questions. Is the only one capable of basically re resolving all problems. And people actually even react that way, even the cabinet members. Anybody move, nobody says anything unless the president actually comment or make a decision. So everything is around one person, and that has basically uh, weakened the uh, independence that you gotta have in in in, in all the, the branches of government. And the judiciary, as you know, is probably the most important one because it's the system by which you bring people to justice. You know, you 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 kind of strengthen accountability, and if you don't have that system uh, well positioned to make those uh, decisions. Uh, in a way that is independent from what the president says or whatever is in power, um, then you you are you have a system that is hijacked by uh, you know by a particular interest in these cases, and in, in if you have that you gotta have a high level of impunity, and when you have impunity, 
you feel you feel corruption because you know that nothing's going to happen. On, I mean, as long as you are very well connected with the person so that makes the charts. Presidents are above the law. Members of Congress or national assemblies are above the law. Big businesses are above the law. That's what you're saying there. Well, uh, yeah, in a, in a, in a, you know, briefly, yes. Uh, and, and the problem that you can have people feeling that they are above the law. I mean, I think that, you know, that, that, that sometimes is a feeling you get when you, you are in a position of power. I think that's something that you can find even everywhere. You can even find in the United States. You can find it in the, in, you know, in the, you know, best what we could call or, or, or oldest democracy, democracies in, in the world. The problem is when you don't have uh, anybody to challenge that power in, in a way that is independent. I'm glad you mentioned the United States in, in, in that statement. And we should note that the United States is not the top of the Transparency International Index. It actually comes in tied at number 19 with Uruguay. Uruguay is the highest ranked country in Latin America on that particular index. So the United States is comparable to some parts of Latin America, at least uh, according to their index. And I think Fulton wanted to make a point, Fulton Armstrong of the American University Center for Latin American and Latino Studies wanted to make a point along those lines. I just wanted to make the point that when we gringos sit down and start talking about Latin American corruption, I think we should do it with an element of transparency on our own part. And that is that many Latin Americans, and I think with, with some, with some, with some truth in it, perceive that the difference between their corruption and our corruption is ours is pretty legal. The way our political action committees and our lobbyists throw away around their money, the way that they can buy research uh, that makes their point, the way they can circumvent the media, the way they can circumvent civil society, etc., etc. Uh, we have we have things in the United States that I think that when, when we talk to our Latin American friends, we should be transparent about uh, as well. When we talk about corruption, we have to remember it's not just a government phenomenon, it's a cultural and societal phenomenon. Government officials don't bribe themselves. They're bribed by people in the private sector or in the population at large who are looking for a tax cut, they're looking for a variance or an exception to the rules or for a special permit or, or whatever. And that's what the problem is, that these institutions are weak and vulnerable to the um, to the to the to the to the pressure, the financial pressure, including to the individuals from the private sector. One of the things I think you wanted to get to, Fulton, was a, a definition of corruption. So so help us with your definition. Maybe the others here can can add into that. Well, the definition I wanted to share was to not just say that the governments are corrupt because governments are corrupt or government bureaucrats who are corrupt are corrupt, but that there's a it's a broader systemic um, problem. Adam Isaacson of Wola, you actually started this part of the discussion with, with putting your finger on the idea that if justice systems are stronger, then, then we're going to have less corruption. Um, do you have some definitions or some other ideas along those lines that will help us along? Well, certainly a, a definition is uh, uh, an illegal arrangement, usually involving a state, um, in which uh, the rules are broken in order to benefit uh, one party, and there is a big losing party. Often that losing party is society. Uh, let me try to make the transition here. In the United States, the joke often when we get in the spring is is uh, how many people cheat on their taxes. <laughs> in some parts of Latin America, Mexico, other parts, it's not whether you're cheating on your taxes, it's whether you're paying your taxes at all. Right. And so this is one, 
one of the things when we talk about civil society and governments, um, I wonder if, if Fulton wants to address this or others want to address this, this issue of the basic part of citizenship, which is you pay your taxes, you, you, act, you actually have to be part of the system. I remember when we were first looking at Plan Columbia in Colombia, we had done some serious research and had our findings corroborated that an extraordinarily low num percentage of the well-off uh, entrepreneurial class and above were paying any taxes at all. And I think as we modestly bumped those figures up, I think it's still only modest, modestly we, we patted ourselves on the back that we were driving some major cultural change. <laughs> the fact is that it, in, if you have if you have a society that has certain needs, you need resources to at least prime the pump to create the security, create the infrastructure, so that later on you can generate wealth and then increase your taxes in a more broad fashion. I mean, I, I, I don't like to make gross generalizations. I, sh I shouldn't make gross generalizations, but sometimes I, I, I fall into the trap that if there's one thing that Latin American societies need, it's a better definition of community and and, and how to find where common interests are. As long as, even in countries like Costa Rica, where personal security has traditionally been better than others, people don't want to pay taxes for police and community-based sort of law enforcement, and instead vastly prefer to pay somebody $2 an hour to stand outside their, their personal property. What they're doing is short-circuiting. They're still spending the money, but they're not spending it in a way where there's benefit beyond their own front door. And so this is a, it's, these are all interrelated factors in society that if you, if you have a sense of community, you, you will then invest in this, you will pay your taxes. If you don't, you don't. And the society then stumbles along in this haphazard way. Yeah, Rick, Rick let, can I make a, a comment on that? Uh, Rick, it's the fact that it all comes again to the fact that uh, you, we are dealing with countries where there has been a, a tradition of, ver, of, of presidentialismos or, or in a case of paternalismos, you know, where, where the state basically is responsible for providing everything. I mean, I, I, we got we to gotta understand that citizens were not really used to be paying for e everything, you know, like you have in many Western, you know, countries like in, you know, in Western Europe or in the United States. Uh, you know, people were used to get their problems solved by not really paying anything, and they are used to that. So, so making making uh, making the citizens pay, you know, needless to say, is the, the 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 ones that are better off um, is 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 a cultural change, and we are dealing with a process that is longer than just a law. You know, I know a lot of a lot of uh, countries. Mexico, I think, started one of them. Uh, you know, when when the NAFTA all came, one of the requirements was to you know improve the whole you know uh, tax systems. You know, and and they have gone a long way, as Fulton mentioned, and, and many countries actually in Latin America. I'm very happy. Sometimes now I I go to to a country and people are are talking about paying taxes, which is very remarkable. Before they would never even talk about it. And but however. There is still a long way to go because it's a, it's a, it's not a problem. Uh, it, it has a structural problems, but but a lot of countries already have changed their laws and improved the way of how they collect taxes. But now you have the issue of mentality where people doesn't really feel they have to do it, and to add to the problem is corruption because in order for me to pay, 
to the government, I need to feel that those administer the money have the uh, credibility and gain the trust that I have to have in order to give money to the government. So, and then you have now this feeling where why should I pay this if they are more corrupt than anybody else and are not really using the money and giving to improve the schools, to improve this, the, the, the roads, to, to improve transportation. So if you don't have an improving on quality of life and you have governments that are, you know, uh, around scandals every day, you, you're never going to gain that trust needed to make the citizens really change their culture of not paying taxes. But it's, it's, trust, it's trust also, though, among the citizens themselves, because I'm yeah. not going to pay my taxes uh, if, if I don't think that, Luis, you're paying your taxes, yes. Yes. And, and Adam, that you're paying your taxes uh, yes. and stuff. So it's a game of chicken that no one really wants to become invested and have the trust in the system until, until the, the, they, they feel that everybody's paying. Because we mentioned Mexico and Colombia, I want to mention... Mexico ranked 106 on the Transparency Index and also Colombia ranked 94. Uh, a great discussion, gentlemen. Time for us to take another break. When we come back, uh, I know that Adam Isaacson wants to talk about um, corruption scandals in specific and what they are a sign of. So we'll be back in a moment on the Latin Pulse Corruption Special. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn. Indignate. Act. Welcome back to our special program on corruption on Latin Pulse. Our guest today, Fulton Armstrong of American University Center for Latin American and Latino Studies, who joins us from Costa Rica, Luis Boteo of the International Center for Journalists, and Adam Isaacson of the Washington Office on Latin America. When we broke for a short break, uh, Adam wanted to get in and talk about this these issues. Just briefly, I, I was following on, on, on Fulton's comments about, you know, as long as there's not trust in a society, there's going to be corruption. Um, how do you get to trust, though? It's, uh, you know, game theory will tell you that people are probably not going to cooperate if, if there's no sanction uh, for non-cooperation. And that's sort of where we're stuck. Uh, trust is not going to suddenly flourish in a society until some of those who violate it are made uh, examples of. Um, and the, in most societies, and under a rule of law, those who do that, again, we're coming right back to that question of the justice system, which is the key link in the chain here, um, when there is a scandal. Um, when um, somebody actually goes to jail for uh, corruption for the first time, somebody who is in a position of power or a member of that small elite that always seems to be uh, untouchable in a lot of these countries, that has a, a, an enormous effect, I think, on building trust and making people maybe a little less more less reticent to pay taxes, uh, knowing that uh, maybe it, there's, a, there's less of a likelihood that it will be actually stolen from them and end up in somebody's pockets. Um, but that's a long, you know, it, you require a lot of examples and a lot of convictions, and getting there can be very hard, especially when justice systems are weak. And politicians are weak as well, mm -hmm. because politicians always claim that they're going to clean things up 
Adam, I think you wanted to make the point about specific scandals. So scandals like the Mensalau scandal in, in Brazil, other scandals in, in Latin America. Your, your point is that um, it's a good thing to actually see these scandals, even though they reveal corruption. If you want to sound a note of optimism, and maybe you know we, we should do that a little bit. Um, note that we've had some some big scandals, the the parapolitics scandal and the uh, the, the scandal. Can you tell us a little bit about that parapolitics? Scandal? Sure. In, in Colombia, um, as much as a third of the Congress that was elected in 2006 was investigated or uh, put on trial or, or put in jail um, for ties to uh, right-wing uh, violent narco-trafficking paramilitary groups. Um, also in Colombia, the a, a mayor was brought down by a, a, a huge corruption scandal having to do with construction contracts in Bogota. Um, in Brazil, the Mensalão scandal took down um, some previously untouchable figures uh, who were close to President Lula da Silva. Um, in Mexico, this or last year, you saw the uh, incredibly wealthy, who knows how well she got wealthy, head of the uh, the teachers union, um, a formerly untouchable figure, um, arrested. Um, now, you know, they, you, you look at that news and you think, oh, man, corruption's out of control. This is really, the, this has got to stop. But actually, these are people being made an example of, so maybe sometimes for political reasons, but still the justice system is, you see the word unprecedented attached to the, um, the, the convictions and the charges against them when they happen. And that's what's important because they, they are indicative of the country breaking new ground against uh, people who previously just took impunity for granted. And we should note that earlier this month, the former head of Banco de Brazil, connected to the Mensalau scandal, was uh, arrested in Italy. Now, whether he'll be returned to Brazil for mm -hmm. um, for adjudication is 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 a real question. Um, but we 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 have seen these scandals. To the others on our panel, um, do you agree with with Adam that there's actually a a silver lining to discovering these scandals? I think that yeah, people absorb that fact. But I think also that it might be sort of what I call the, the um, grammar school mentality that one kid gets caught and punished, but that there are six others on the playground <laughs> doing the same thing uh, and, and all that. So I agree completely with Adam, um, and I admire the quality of his analysis on these things, but I'm not yet sure that it's, it's sinking in um, because we see the people that come behind aren't necessarily all that much cleaner or adjunct issues like, for example, the Parapolitica case in Colombia, there are still major human rights violations that were perpetrated during that era that have never been investigated. And people say, okay, so they go after them on the money side, but they don't go after them on something as fundamental as uh, like the false positives case or something like that. Here in Central America, where I'm sitting, we're also watching this incredible phenomenon of how uh, how, how since the coup in Honduras in 2009, the society has practically unraveled. Right. And you see one layer after another after another of, let's call it decay. It's not just corruption. It's, it's part of it is just negligence and, and, and all of that. And how do you then make an example? There have been gross human rights violations there that have never been investigated. And even civil society is is part of this looting game that that happens that people take hand take handouts and stuff like that. It's interesting that it's taken us almost this entire program to get to the very bottom of the corruption indices that uh, Transparency International provides. But Honduras is ranked third worst in Latin America at 140, Paraguay at 150, and worst 
Um, surprising, I think, to some people is is Venezuela at 160. And, and can so, I just observe those are three countries that have not had major corruption scandals, to rescue my point. Uh, it's uh, pretty quiet on that front in Venezuela right now, because who's out there to denounce it? Well, yeah. I, I, my question is, has the Bolivarian Revolution been been squandered by all of this corruption and crime that we see running amok, apparently, in Caracas and elsewhere in Venezuela? Um, um, just, just uh, read, just to mention something that is all is all related. I mean, in fact, um, if you if you think about all these scandals that Isaac mentioned, I mean, most of them really were uh, follow-ups that the media was actually doing. Uh, a lot of the, the 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 problems that were coming out of that were because the media actually uh, came out with the with the with information that basically helped prosecutors basically convict these people. Yes, we have made some progress, uh, and I think that's very important to, 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 to note. But I think all is related by the fact that now you have the media, um, in some cases, more engaged. And not only that, you got citizens more engaged through all these social networks. It's all over. It has, it's, it's, has been documented by video, has been documented by pictures, and not only that, it's in the hands of everybody through their mobile devices. It it's, just it has changed uh, the balance of powers a little bit, and it has forced sometimes some of the governments to kind of recognize public, and they have to actually do it or, or lose a lot of political capital. Well, thank you, gentlemen. That is all the time we have today for this discussion. Luis Boteo of the International Center for Journalists, one of our guests today just finishing up there. Our other guests, Adam Isaacson of the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA. And joining us from Costa Rica, Fulton Armstrong of American University Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. Thank you, gentlemen, for this great discussion of corruption. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Rick. Bye-bye. I want to finish school. And then go to college. To be able to graduate. And have the future my parents couldn't have. Because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. When Fernando Gonzalez is released from federal prison in Arizona next week, he will have spent 15 years, 5 months, and 15 days labeled as a spy. When he returns home to Cuba, he'll be greeted as a hero. U.S. authorities arrested Gonzalez and four other Cuban intelligence officers in 1998. The U.S. government charged the so-called Cuban Five with crimes ranging from failure to register with the federal government as foreign agents to conspiracy to commit murder, and they were convicted of those charges. Next Thursday, Gonzalez is scheduled to be the second member of the Five who's released. But the three who remain in U.S. prisons continue to be a source of tension between the United States and Cuba. Latin Pulse's Rachel Bay revisited the events that led to the arrests of the five and the controversy that resulted. Celebrities have rallied behind them. Hola, me llamo Ramon Esteves, a.k.a. Martin Sheen. I have supported the Cuban Five's quest for freedom for several years now, and I will continue to do so, for the simple fact that the Five were on a mission to save lives. Some, like longtime political activist Gloria Lariva, say the Cuban Five are heroes. The Cuban Five felt a great mission 
to protect their people from terrorism. They gave up their families for a number of years, never knowing if they would return home. And yet each one of them has said, we do not regret our mission because we were doing what any of our people would have done to save our people's lives. But according to the U.S. government, the five are spies, some of whom conspired to shoot down a plane carrying American citizens. This is from a court document submitted to the U.S. Supreme Court on behalf of the federal government. Petitioners were operatives of the Directorate of Intelligence, or DI, of Cuba, and members of a DI organization in South Florida known as La Red Avispa, or the WASP network. As members of the network, petitioners penetrated U.S. military facilities and transmitted information about the facility's operations and layout to Cuba. Gerardo Hernandez, Antonio Guerrero, Ramon Labanino, Fernando Gonzalez, and Rene Gonzalez arrived in Miami in the early 1990s, years before they became known as the Cuban Five. The Soviet Union had just collapsed, and according to Stephen Kimber, a professor at the University of King's College in Halifax, Canada, Cuban exile groups in Miami believed Cuba might collapse too. Kimber wrote a book about the Cuban Five, What Lies Across the Water, which came out in August. He says that when Cuba didn't collapse, Fidel Castro turned to tourism to boost the Caribbean nation's economy. That's when the exile groups became more agitated. They began to plot greater and greater attacks on Cuba. In 1997, it was a wave of, of bombings at Havana tourist hotels. A Canadian, Italian Canadian tourist was killed in one of those. Lots of people were injured. There was huge property damage. The purpose of this, of course, was to scare tourists off so that they wouldn't come to Cuba and, and help the economy there. The Cuban Five's mission was to infiltrate the exile groups and to prevent potential terrorist attacks against Cuba. In 1998, though, they, they came across a more serious, more sinister plot, which was to blow up an airplane filled with tourists uh, coming to Cuba. This was a, a plot that was hatched in Miami, it was going to be financed for Miami, but it would involve uh, mercenaries from Central America and others involved in, in all of this. So the, the Cubans ultimately felt that they could not by themselves stop this attack. In the spring of 1998, Fidel Castro enlisted the aid of his good friend, uh, the novelist uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, to take a secret message to Gabriel Garcia Marquez's other good friend, Bill Clinton. In June 1998, a delegation from the FBI met with Cuban state security. Cuban state security turned over the information they'd gathered about that plot and others to the FBI, and the FBI promised to look it over. The Cubans to this day will tell you that they believe those FBI agents who came to Havana in the summer of 1998 were sincere. But what happened is that after they got back to uh, the United States, the Cubans didn't hear any more from them and didn't hear any more from them. And then on September 12, 1998, instead of arresting the people who were involved in, the, in this terrorist plot, uh, the FBI swooped in and arrested the men who became known as the Cuban Five. Each of the five was charged with and later convicted of different crimes. All five had failed to register with the U.S. government as foreign agents. Two of the five were U.S. citizens, but the other three were guilty of entering the country under false identities. Three were also found guilty of conspiracy to commit espionage, and Hernandez was guilty of conspiracy to commit murder. 
Kimber explains that the murder charge, the most severe of their charges, began with a group called Brothers to the Rescue. Brothers to the Rescue was one of the exile organizations uh, based in Miami. During the early 1990s, uh, it had a very prominent role in rescuing rafters who, who were trying to make it from Cuba to, to the United States. You know, they, they were seen as a humanitarian organization, which I think it's fair to say they were. However, after 1994, after the United States and Cuba signed an immigration uh, agreement to try and solve this problem of the rafters, they became kind of agents provocateur. They would fly illegally into Cuban airspace and drop leaflets on Cuba saying, on Havana saying, you know, rise up against your oppressors. What the Cubans knew, because they had agents inside Brothers to the Rescue, was that in addition to the sort of the leaflets and that kind of thing, that the Brothers to the Rescue were also test firing missiles that could be fired from their small planes. At this point, the Cuban government protested Brothers to the Rescue's frequent flights into Cuban airspace. Concerned, the United States tried to suspend the licenses of the pilots to Brothers to the Rescue, but the pilots fought the suspensions. Cuba warned the United States that they were going to put a stop to the group's flights. This is the account the U.S. government gave the Supreme Court of what happened to the Brothers to the Rescue, or BTTR, planes. On February 24, 1996, three BTTR planes made a scheduled flight over the Florida Straits to search for rafters. The flight plans were transmitted to Cuba. When the planes passed the boundary between Miami and Havana Air Traffic Control, which lies in international airspace, they identified themselves to Havana. Within minutes, Cuban fighter jets pursued two of the BTTR planes. The Cuban fighters shot down both planes, killing all four men aboard, three of whom were U.S. citizens. Both planes were in international airspace, heading away from Cuba, when they were shot down. Neither plane had entered Cuban airspace. Following the shootdown, Hernandez wrote to his superiors that he and others took pride in having contributed to an operation that ended successfully. Whether the planes were shot down over international waters or in Cuban airspace remains a point of contention, and many supporters of the five question whether Hernandez could have had any involvement with the decision to shoot down the planes at all. Washington lawyer Robert Muse, who submitted a brief supporting the case of the five to the Supreme Court several years ago, is among those who don't agree with the conspiracy to commit murder conviction. That was only possible, that charge, if the government could prove several things. That one, he had prior knowledge that the two small planes were going to be shot down. And secondly, that he knew the intention was to shoot them down in international waters. How could he possibly have known those things? All of the evidence from the case is the decision was made by the Cuban government, apparently at the very highest levels, to shoot the planes down. That decision was made contemporaneously with him being in Cuban airspace. Unless you could prove beyond a reasonable doubt he had those two independent pieces of knowledge, he couldn't be convicted. Muse explains that it's much easier to convict someone of conspiracy to commit espionage or conspiracy to commit murder than it is to convict on a simple charge of espionage or murder. They don't actually prove that you did anything. They try to get a jury to believe, well, you with other people planned to do something. They were all Cuban agents. They met with each other periodically. Some planes got shot down. 
so they must have conspired. Supporters of the Cuban Five say they were convicted in large part because they weren't given a fair trial. Anti-Cuban and particularly anti-Castro sentiment pervades Miami. Gloria La Riva, the spokeswoman for the National Committee to Free the Cuban Five, says this atmosphere made a fair trial with an impartial jury nearly impossible. The jury was not sequestered. The jury for seven months went home every day. And anybody who lives and grows up in Miami knows, especially from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, that if your name was announced to the media and you were in support of normalization of relations with Cuba, you could face death threats, bombings. During the trial, some of the jury members, they were followed to their cars and some of this right-wing media in Miami actually filmed their license plates, causing fear among the jurors. They couldn't possibly be protected from this media coverage. The federal government disputed these arguments and the U.S. District Court in Miami denied the Five's request to relocate the trial to another city where their attorneys said they would have been more likely to find unbiased jurors. Despite concerns about the trial, U.S. courts upheld the convictions throughout the appeals process, which ended in 2008 at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit in Atlanta. Rene Gonzalez was the first to be released in October 2011, after nearly 14 years in prison. When Fernando Gonzalez, no relation to Rene Gonzalez, is released on Thursday, Rene has said he hopes Fernando will join his fight for their three compatriots' release. But Labanino and Guerrero are expected to spend many more years in prison, and Hernandez's two life sentences mean he may live out his days in prison. Human rights groups like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, Nobel Prize laureates, and international figures ranging from South African activist Desmond Tutu to Harry Belafonte have all lobbied for the release of the remaining members of the five. La Riva says her organization is continuing legal appeals on the remaining three men's behalf. And Kimber says releasing the remaining members of the five is key for improving U.S.-Cuba relations. If things are going to change between Cuba and the United States, something has to be done about them. And at the same time, something has to be done about a man named Alan Gross, who's an American contractor who's uh, in prison in Havana for bringing uh, sophisticated uh, telecommunications equipment into that country. None of these people deserve to rot in jail. They're all, I think, victims of the Cold War between Havana and Washington that's been going on forever. Supporters of the five, as well as Gross's family, have urged a sort of prisoner swap. Cuban officials say they're on board. U.S. officials have been less inclined. Official U.S. policy is to demand the unconditional release of Alan Gross and other political prisoners rather than a release conditioned on the Cuban Five's freedom. But many experts agree with Kimber that until the Gross case and the Cuban Five case are resolved, the relationship between the United States and Cuba is at a stalemate. For Latin Pulse, I'm Rachel Bay. We contacted various anti-Castro groups and experts as part of the research for this report. None would comment on the record for this story. We also want to acknowledge the production assistance of Chris Young in that last report. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and MusicaQ. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game Minimundos. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, 
www.latinpulse.org and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Zach Cohen, reporter Rachel Bay, and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music by Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2014, Las Rocas Productions. Thank you.